And now for something completely different. A radio show about books. Didn't think it through at all. Inconceivable! <laughs> yes, the show's serious. That's totally a thing. Thank you. Tarzan of the Apes. Brought to you from out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book. Oh, wow. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. And now for your host, Daniel Thompson, a completely underqualified buffoon who has no idea why he's here in the first place. And all were amazed and said, this guy is really good. Do you do children's parties? <laughs> Hello, my people. Welcome again to the Very Serious Writing Show. Ah, yes, today we have in studio R.J. Anderson. She is the author of the five-part fairy fantasy series, starting with the book Knife, as well as A Pocket Full of Murder, which is new on the field. It's like a fantasy steampunk, and I love steampunk. You know, you know how I feel about this. You know how I feel about steampunk, and it is cool. We are talking genre bending. We are talking fan fiction. We are talking Christians in the general market, foreign publication, republication. We have a lot of stuff because the whole interview is happening in this episode that's a new thing well it's not a new thing it's an old thing we are going back to the one episode a week system and i assure you this is actually good news and i've got more explanation on that at the end of this episode but without further ado rj anderson everybody bomb shakalaka You're here because we want the best, and you're it. Nope, couldn't keep a straight face. I am no man. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine. What's the weather like? Uh, it's kind of cold and drizzly. Yeah? Not snowy, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That, that is good. It's been icing yeah. here in Oklahoma. Where are you at? I'm in Stratford, Ontario. Stratford, Ontario. Yes. <laughs> that is very cool. Yeah. So, so yeah. Canada. I don't get very many Canadians on the show. And when I do, well, they there just, you go. When I do, they just make moose jokes. Oh, well, no moose jokes here. We don't have any moose in this area. We have swans. Swans? Swans are dangerous. Are they? Yes, lots of swans. I heard today yes. that, that ducks are the most dangerous of all the creatures, but swans. Swan, swans are dangerous. Well, I don't know. I have. I, I, I've, I've heard more more about swans being grumpy and, and aggressive than I have about ducks. So What do, what do y'all swans do? Um, well, we have them. They're sort of decorative. We have a bunch of city swans uh, that float on our picturesque lake in front of the Shakespearean theater. So they're kind of a tourist thing. Really? I didn't know mm -hmm. that. I didn't know that you could make swans be a tourist thing. Yeah. How yeah. Long? Yeah. So they ha they have a whole sort of flock of them that they march down from the their winter home to the river every April, and they have like bagpipers piping, and people line the road to see these swans. It's like a, tr a city tradition every year. Yeah. Really? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. How long have you lived in the area? Oh, let me think. It's been. Almost 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey, I have some questions for you. Absolutely. I, I was looking. I was looking over all your stuff today, and I, you've been in like several different writing markets, and I'm really curious about that. I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about uh, one thing I noticed while I was reading your bio. I saw that you you like fan fiction. Oh yes. Yes. And they, and they, I kind of got my start in fan fiction. Yeah. How'd that work for you? I know a lot, I have a lot of friends who do the fan fiction thing, and they always struggle with, is it worth it? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, for me, it was never a question of whether it was worth it. I mean, when I started doing it, I was 13 years old, and I was doing it on a typewriter. Um, oh, that's cool. And, yeah, and so I literally thought I had invented fan fiction. I didn't know anyone else who did it. Um, I, I had no idea that it was a thing. I had no idea it was called fan fiction. I just knew that I really loved this TV show and I wanted to have the chance to write adventures and make stuff happen that was not happening fast enough for me in the show. So <laughs> I started writing my own stories and showing them to my friends because they loved the same show. And before I knew it, I kind of had a small group of readers who were like, hey, where's my next Remington Steel story? So uh, <laughs> that was kind of how I got started. Um, and then as I got a little older um, and actually got online, uh, one of the first things I did was um, join um, or actually start a Star Trek fan fiction um, forum where I was one of several contributors to this ongoing storyline. And so um, we wrote this epic sort of Star Trek adventure with all of us coming in from the point of view of various characters. And it was Star Trek the third generation because Next Generation was airing at the time. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, so I went on from there um, in my late teens and early 20s, um, wrote a bunch of Doctor Who fan fiction, yes. X-Files fan fiction, uh, Harry Potter fan fiction eventually. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote quite a bit and I met a lot of people that way. Um, but at the same time, I was also writing my own original fiction. It, I never sort of did just one or the other. I was always alternating between them. Um, so my ambition was always to become a published author. Um, but fan fiction was just like, I like writing and I, I have this idea for a story and I'm going to write it. So well, That's a lot of fun. So you did Doctor Who and X-Files and Star Trek and what, what, yep. what else? Uh, House. Um, ah. Sherlock Holmes. Um, I have, let me see, Alias. Uh, I did a bit of Big Bang Theory. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, so I I kind of have done a little bit of everything. Whatever I was watching at the time. um, And, you know, if I was dissatisfied with something that was or wasn't happening in the show, I would kind of put my own twist on it. Well, what era of Doctor Who did you write in? Was... Well, I'm an old school fan, so oh, okay. I was I was writing Doctor Who fan fiction before the revival, um, mm. during the great hiatus, you know, from 1987 on. Um, I, I mean, I had watched it as a kid gotcha. um, from behind the sofa, um, and I grew up with Tom Baker and had a huge crush on Peter Davison, you know. So <laughs> I, I had really, you know, I was I was an old school fan, and um, so I actually the old uh, records Doctor Who group online, the who later became published authors along with me. Um, and some of whom I'm still in touch with. Um, and we were all writing fan fiction at the time. And then the new series came and it was like, yay! Um, but I really haven't written much for the new series. Most of it was for the old. 
Have you kept up watching the new series? I oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have a bunch of fans, uh, friends rather, who uh, watch like the the new Doctor where we got yes. in Capaldi, and they're like, "Oh, there's so many throwbacks to classic Who in Capaldi." Yes, yes, definitely. And I almost wish I had had the time to watch classic Doctor Who because as a college yeah. student, I, I don't. I feel like I'm missing all these great yeah. references. Yeah, well, there's always time to catch up. And, you know, I think you can you can find lists online that are kind of like how to hit the highlights so you don't okay. have to watch every single episode by any means. Um, I mean, I haven't watched... There's a lot of la- classic Who that I haven't seen. I've seen at least some of all of the Doctors, but like one to three, I haven't seen that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen most of four, all of five several times. <laughs> Skipped most of six because I didn't like him. Maybe seen about two thirds of seven. And then there's just the TV movie for eight. Um, yeah. But I've read, uh, listened to a couple of the audio dramas. I loved eight. Um, so yeah, so I've got kind of enough of a background that I, I usually go, hey, wait a second, isn't that something from the old series? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, I'm not. I'm not one of these completest fans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really cool. Well, hey, let's talk about some of your your new work here recently. I saw that you've mm-hmm. put out put out the book, um, the, a pocket full of murder here recently. That's right. Yeah. yeah tell, tell me a little bit about yeah. that. It looks really it looks really cool. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's the story of a twelve, almost thirteen year old girl in an alternate world that sort of I based her city her world on um, 1935 Toronto Um, nice it's interesting all the reviews keep saying that it's Victorian England I don't know why (laughs) it's definitely not but um, I think people just assume it's Victorian England because so many kids books are set there but it's got radio it's got bobbed hair it's got you know electric well not electric trams magic powered trams so this is kind of a 1935 style world that runs on magic instead of electricity. Um, and magic is more or less a science. It's something you make by combining ingredients in various ways. So it's not a mystical calling on spirits kind of thing at all. Um, anyway, my heroine is from a very, very poor family. Uh, her mother has died and her father has lost his job and uh, so they're really struggling to make ends meet living in one of the worst parts of the city and uh, her father gets arrested and accused of murdering one of the city's most prominent citizens and Isabeth, my heroine, knows he didn't do it and so she sets out to prove his innocence Um, and in the meantime she's also making home-baked spells to sell on the street to support herself and her sisters. So uh, she makes fire and light tablets that she can sell to people on the street. Um, And while she's on the street, she bumps into, quite literally, she bumps into a young street boy with an eye patch named Quiz, who offers to help her solve the mystery and clear her father's name. So it turns into quite an adventure as the two of them pedal around the city on his bicycle um, looking for clues and trying to find who really did it so that she can save her father from being hanged for murder. Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a really <laughs> fun story and the setting sounds really cool. Yeah, everyone does Victoria England. <laughs> and, yeah, and, now- and I love Victorian stuff, but that's one of the reasons I didn't want to do it. And another reason is I love the, you know, classic... Um, murder mysteries of Dorothy L. Sayers and Marjorie Allingham. Uh, Agatha Christie would be another one. I'm not as fond of Agatha because I don't like her characters as much, but I really love Dorothy L. Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries and uh, Marjorie Allingham's Campion books. And so I wanted to kind of write a tribute to those for younger readers to just give them a taste of what I loved about those mysteries 
But because I'm a fantasy author, I, you know, I just didn't want to write a straight up mystery. I love the idea of including magic in this world and making it an alternate world that's similar to but different from our own. And so that was kind of what I was playing with. And that's why it's set in the 1930s, because that's when those books were set and written. Oh, yeah, it's a great time period. There's a lot of fun there. That's a cool idea, kind of doing a throwback to that style. You don't see a whole lot of that. We just we're stuck in dystopia for the most part yes. right now. Yes, so, that's right. And you, you do a lot of genre hopping. Like you've got you've got your sci-fi series, you have your fantasy series that that start with, with knife, that your yes. sci-fi series being ultraviolet. Do you like mm-hmm. do you like genre hopping and doing I like genre blending. I, I definitely like, you know, everything I write tends to be a combination of things. I mean, Knife is both a fantasy, a contemporary, and a mystery, and it's a romance as well. Um, so I kind of threw in everything that I loved. You know, it's a fantasy, obviously, because it's the story of a fierce young fairy hunter who fights to save her dying people while concealing her forbidden friendship with a human. But it's also set in the contemporary, modern English countryside. And so the fairies are contending with dangers like, you know, electrical wires and lawnmowers. Uh, (laughs) Um, That's great. Yeah, so uh, it's very much rooted in, I want my books to feel real. So everything that I write, as opposed to being in some sort of far-flung fantasy realm, um, it tends to be set in a world that is our own or very like our own. Um, And so I try to make it have that sense of reality, of of being grounded, um, and of being realistic in all the ways that I can make it realistic, so that the magical elements um, have that ring of truth to them as well. So... Oh, that's cool. That's a good way to approach it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. Now, hey, <laughs> I was on your Reddit, because that's how I research, apparently, now. <laughs> I go to people's Reddits, and I saw that you said something about, you're, you're, as, a, as a writer, you're a Christian, but you write for the general market. Yes. So yeah. what, tell me a little bit about that. I've talked with, with a lot of Christians who write for the Christian market, but what's it like writing for the general market as a Christian? Yeah, it, it's, that's something that I always felt convicted that I wanted to do. Um, I grew up reading Christian fantasy, um, both fantasy that was published by Christian publishers, such as John White's Archives of Antiquities series, um, and and fantasy that was published, you know, sort of across both markets, like the Narnia series and, um, and so on. Um, but, you know, so I did have a somewhat knowledge of Christian fantasy. I'd read Lawhead and, and some other Christian authors. Um, but I just, when I was thinking about who I wanted to write for, I, I read a lot of general market fantasy as a kid because there just wasn't enough Christian fantasy to, to yeah, satisfy no kidding, me. There just right? wasn't enough out there. There was no way to keep up with it. Um, so I kept coming across evidence of the author's pagan or atheistic or humanistic worldviews in what they wrote. And I thought, here are these people. They are preaching or they are, you know, expressing their worldviews in the general market. Where are the Christians that are making, you know, biblical truth accessible to the general market. I saw a lot of Christians writing for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe with the sort of this dream that maybe a non-Christian will pick up this book and read it someday, but the likelihood of that is pretty much nil if it's, you know, by a Christian publisher. Um, that's just the reality of it. So I thought, you know, it's not that I want to preach, and it's not that I even think fiction is a good medium for preaching the gospel per se, 
But just the idea of expressing a Christian worldview in a positive way that might, um, as C.S. Lewis put it, steal past those watchful dragons of people's Mm -hmm. resistance to spiritual things and just make them think in a slightly new way, just to make them slightly more sympathetic, perhaps, to Christianity by looking at it in a new way. Um, so that was kind of what was, was in my mind and heart. And I didn't know how that was going to come out in my books. Um, I didn't start any of my books with sort of, well, this is the message that I want to preach. I started with a story. Um, again, Lewis has a great uh, essay about that and how he started the same way with uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, he never started with an idea of, I'm going to write an allegory about the death of Christ, only I'm going to make him a lion. He started with the lion with no sense that Aslan was going to represent Jesus at all. He just started writing the story with these images that had come to his mind. And gradually, because he was a Christian and because he was thinking about these things all the time, uh, they just came out naturally in the course of writing the story. And so that's kind of the approach that I try to take as well, just to, to write the story, the best story that I can. And just if something comes out naturally in the story as I'm telling it, then that's great. And that's what I want to do. I didn't know that Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a whole essay about it. Um, it all began with a picture. Um, there's a collection of his essays, actually, which is really excellent for writers, called Of This and Other Worlds. Okay. Uh, that was published, I guess, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, and uh, it's got a number of his, his articles about writing, about criticism. Um, and it's, it's just a fantastic resource, um, I think, for Christian writers, because it really, I think, does give a good approach on, on writing for children, on writing for a non-Christian audience, on, you know, all kinds of things. So that was very inspirational to me as, uh, as a young writer. I'll have to pick that up. I know my library's got Tolkien on fairy tales sitting out there on display, and I've been meaning to grab that one, too. That's a great essay, too. Yeah, Tolkien <laughs> I've heard they're really stuff. good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, have, you, have you run into any problems trying to publish a Christian worldview story in the general market? You know, I wondered about that, too, when I started. I, I really wondered if my editors were going to yeah. say, yeah, kind of tone that down or take that out. I have never had that happen to me. Really? In fact, I in fact I had one editor, my second book, uh, which is probably my most blatantly Christian book because it actually contains a missionary kid as a main character. Um, there's a conversation that Timothy, my missionary kid, and Lyndon, a fairy, have in that book um, where they're talking about the great gardener who is God, basically, as the fairies believe. Um, and he's talking about God. She's talking about the great gardener. And my editor, who is, as far as I'm aware, not a Christian, um, said, um, are they talking about the same God here? Like, are you talking about sort of the God of the Bible? And I said, well, yes, you know. And she said, well, could you make that more clear? <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> like wow. here, I thought I had to be like, you know, subtle or something. I had to leave it for the reader to maybe conclude that. But no, no. She was like, can you make it more clear? Okay. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So I did get some pushback from reviewers um, who said things like awkwardly inserted Christian doctrine may distract <laughs> some readers. Um, but I found that some people are just very sort of... Um, gun-shy or or hostile to the inclusion of religion or faith in any favorable way at all in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you are going to get some of that, um, you know, whatever you write, it's going to, they're going to think it's preachy. But I did run it past a number of non-Christian um, 
readers before I published the book and said, look, you know, how does this read to you? Does it seem obnoxious? Does it seem like, you know, like I'm derailing the story to preach a sermon? Um, and, you know, they, they were honest with me and said, you know, you know, yes a bit here or no there, and you know, so I really made an effort to do that. Uh, not to compromise the message, but to make sure that the story came first. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Here are 10 things you can do besides listening to the Very Serious Writing Show on Thursdays. Number one, listen to the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio drama, because frankly, that's funnier and you'll get more out of it than this. Number two, pick up the tuba or the saxophone or the accordion or all of them. You do you, honey. Number three, eat loud foods. Number four, spear hunt for windigals. Number five, catch up on that mile-long reading list of yours. Crime and punishment isn't going to read itself, sugar. Number six, become a supervillain. Yo, laser shocks. That's what I'm talking about. Number seven, play a sport. Homeschoolers need not apply. Number eight, contemplate existentialism using dodo bird biological parallel analogies. <laughs> number nine, weep and gnash your teeth. And finally, number ten, write. Because that's the point of this, isn't it? Write. And that's the list of all the things you can do besides watching the Bear Series writing show on Thursday. There's really a stigma against the, uh, the general market among young Christian authors that I've seen anyway. It's mm. like, well, but there's also there's also stigma against Christian publishing because it's been all Amish romance for so long. That is the problem. There's, you know, I, I, obviously Enclave Publishing, my own uh, new publisher for Knife and Rebel, uh, is trying to change that. But I think the overwhelming majority of Christian fiction is is still this bonnet romance um, subgenre, um, and it's pretty hard to to get away from that in the Christian market. I think because publishers have not seen a lot of success with fantasy and science fiction, I think part of that is because the Christians who love fantasy and science fiction are like I was as a kid. They're voracious readers and they can't get enough of it from Christian publishing. So they go looking in the general market and sometimes they find that the general market fiction is just much better written um, than, than some of the Christian fantasy they've been reading. And so they tend to migrate there and then they don't look in the Christian market anymore. Um, so that can be difficult if you're writing genre for sure. Yeah, well, hey, as long as we're talking about markets, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to go back to that because you've published in multiple national markets. You've published Canadian, British, and American. Yes. And I'm, I know nothing about those first two. What, what mm -hmm. are the markets like in, in Canada and Britain? And why is there not crossover into other nations? Well, there is, there is and there isn't. Um, basically what happened with my first novel is I sold it first to HarperCollins in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and then my agent, who has contacts with numerous co-agents overseas, including the U.K., they have a special partnership with the U.K., sent my manuscript to his U.K. co-agent who loved it and sold it to another publisher over there. Um, so Orchard Books bought the book in the U.K. And at the time, I was like, oh, bonus. Well, that's nice. I sold in another market and didn't really think much of it. But what I didn't realize was that my American publisher was already glutted with fairy books and had sort of taken mine as kind of well, we don't have a lot for sort of the younger end of the young adult spectrum, so we'll take this one. But our big push is going to be the older ones, sort of the the sexy, dark fairy romances, because that was what was in at the time. Okay. So they were not really taking my book that seriously. That was just the way it was. And this is um, Knife. 
that we're talking about. This is Knife. Okay. This was Knife, yeah. As it was originally published, they called it Fairy Rebels Spell Hunter, which no one could remember, no one could spell, but that was... <laughs> an... In the UK, they took my original title, Knife. They gave it a Brian Froud cover. Brian Froud is a very famous, popular uh, fairy artist who has worked with like Jim Henson on movies oh, like really? The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. So he's pretty well known among people who like fairy art. Um, he'd probably be one of the the big names. Anyway, so they they got a piece of art from him uh, that reminded them of my character and and put it on the cover. And they decided that my book was going to be their lead title for the year, and I had no idea. And they gave it a huge push, and it ended up becoming a bestseller. And it went into, well, last time I checked, it was 13 printings. Ooh, um, nice. My fairy, yeah, my fairy books have sold over 80,000 copies in the wow. UK and, and internationally, um, because the UK publisher also covers like Australia, New Zealand, and a host of other countries. Um, yeah, so that was like, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I had no idea that it was going to go that way. So for a long time, my big success was in the UK. Um, and then in Canada, uh, originally they were covered by my US publisher. And it was kind of, it came into Canada that way. But it was, Canada was kind of an afterthought as far as my US publisher was concerned. Because it's a much smaller market, much smaller. Um, and then when that sort of petered out, um HarperCollins didn't, you know, they weren't that thrilled with the sales of my first two books in the U.S. Um, and so they declined to publish the third one, whereas the U.K. was still going strong. Um, and I actually sold five fairy books over there. Um, so I ended up bringing the paperbacks from the U.K. into Canada as imports because we do get a lot of British stuff as well as American stuff coming over so we can do that. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it worked out for me. And um, now my latest title, A Pocket Full of Murder, uh, that is being published by Simon & Schuster uh, in the U.S. and Simon & Schuster Canada. So I have a Canadian publicist and they're kind of focusing their efforts on, on you know, Canadian events and Canadian promotion and, and so on. So that's kind of a nice experience. But yeah, it is a much smaller market in Canada. Um, the U.K. Uh, is is smaller than the U.S. obviously population-wise, but it has a much greater percentage of readers, avid readers. Um, so most of the uh, fan mail that I get uh, for the Knife series, um, it comes from school children in the U.K., some of whom have studied the book, read it at school, um, or just picked it up on their own. Um, and I get a lot of boy readers as well as girl readers in the U.K., um, which is not something that really happens in the U.S. when you write about fairies. Um, it's just a different perception of fairies over here. People think Tinkerbell. Yeah. They don't take Yeah. It's like Disney Tinkerbell. It's for little girls. Whereas in the UK, it's seen as much part of an older folkloric tradition that is for everyone, not just little girls. Okay. I didn't realize that a US publisher, a mainstream US publisher, wouldn't cover uh, international territories. I didn't know that it was good to seek out publication in other territories. Yeah, it really depends. I mean... My agent um, likes to try and negotiate rights in other countries himself um, because you, as the author and as the agent, you make more money that way if you can do separate deals for other countries as opposed to just giving world rights to an American publisher, which they will ask for and they usually want. But if you can get them 
not to insist on those. Um, it's actually better uh, or can be better for the author and publisher in the long run. It's, it's really a gamble because sometimes your American publisher can get your book published in more markets than you could yourself. Um, my first title, for instance, got published in Turkey, Estonia uh, and Germany. Uh, as a result of HarperCollins selling it in those territories. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, after that, we kind of retained our world rights, and I haven't sold in so many international markets since. I'm, I'm starting to get the picture. Now, how does that work with ebooks? Uh, ebooks, they kind of come under the same um, terms as, as my print books. I've never like, I've never done just an ebook release. Mm -hmm. uh, so ebooks, you know, at the beginning, they were kind of an afterthought. They were only just, you know, in 2009, they were only just coming on the scene. Yeah. Um, and of course, now that's really become a big deal, you know, getting the right terms for your ebooks. So there is a separate royalty rate that gets negotiated for ebooks. Um, there is, uh, you know, just different terms that that agents are starting to get savvy about. Okay, you know, uh, we should insist on more royalties for this and so on. So I, I'm very thankful for my agent. He does a really good job of looking out for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I'm I contracts make no sense to me. I'm not, not a lawyer, <laughs> so I'm glad that I'm glad that somebody knows what they're talking about. So if he says to me, "No, I don't think we should go for these rights," I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to bombard you with business questions. I'm a marketing oh, no, no major, problem. so if it's, it, it if fascinates it's useful me. to somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting to me. So, and now you're republishing the uh, the knife series in the U.S. with with Enclave. That's right. Yeah. So did you because get, you got the rights back from HarperCollins, or I did. Yes, uh, HarperCollins had they had declined to do any paperbacks of the first two books and they had declined to publish the third book in the trilogy. So the trilogy was forever unfinished in the U.S. Um, a lot of U.S. fans that I knew had ordered the third book from overseas um, mm. or from Canada because it was available there. But, you know, I, I thought it would be really nice to have the series available in paperback complete in the U.S. And uh, so when I saw what uh, Enclave was doing back when it was Marcher Lord Press, I started kind of thinking about, you know, hey, it would be really interesting to see if, if you know, if this would be a good place to, to republish the books if I could get the rights back. And I, I felt that, too, there was an untapped market um, among Christian readers because I know a lot of Christians who love fantasy and science fiction and they're willing to read general market fiction. They're not insisting on you know, sort of four points in an altar call in everything they read. Mm -hmm. um, but they would be interested in fiction written from a Christian worldview that was sympathetic to Christian moral and spiritual viewpoints. And uh, so I thought if if I can get this book to them, you know, that might be a good thing. Um, so I kind of talked it over with Steve Lobby. He had come up uh, to a writer's conference that I was speaking at in uh, Ontario. Um, and so while I was there, I sat down and chatted with him about it. And uh, he said, well, yeah, if you can get the rights back from HarperCollins, you know, let's talk. So that's what I worked on. And about a year later, that's what we did. I've been talking to more and more people. Um, recently, I was talking with, um, nope, it's not Steve Raza. It was Kerry Neitz. I was talking with Kerry Neitz about oh, yeah. Yeah. how he's republishing and how republishing is becoming a big deal. Have, mm -hmm. you, ha have you had success so far with the Knife Republish? Because you're on, you released your second book this October, right? 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's it's too soon. Um, just because of the way that the accounting works, the way that Amazon handles its statements and so on, I honestly don't know what the numbers are. And, uh, you know, we don't know yet. Mm. Uh, it'll be another few months before we can really see how it's performing and, and how it's doing. Um, so I, I kind of don't know what to expect. Um, but, you know, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, I I'm not expecting to, you know, become a bestseller in the Christian market by any means. I just don't think that's on the table. But um, it would, I, I would like to think that these books can grow an audience. Um, and uh, and I know that that uh, my publisher is, is of the same mind, that he's willing to sort of see how it goes over the long haul. And there's, there's five books total, you said. So there is, yeah. When are the next three coming out? Uh, well, the next one that's coming out in the U.S. is the, the third and final part of the Knife Trilogy, and it's called Arrow, and it will be, um, it will be coming in January, I believe. Um, so uh, that's kind of what we're, we're working on at the moment, and that will complete that original trilogy. Um, I did write two more books uh, for the U.K. Uh, that were in a separate but related trilogy about the, the instead of the fairies of the... English oak. It was the Piskies or the Pixies of Cornwall. Huh. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side are Cornish. And so I have kind of a lot of Cornish traditions in the family. And so that idea of drawing on Cornish folklore, which I hadn't seen a lot, um, kind of interested me. So um, I started researching that and writing a series based on that. So there are two books in that series at present, Swift and Nomad. And I don't know uh, if or when they will ever be published in the U.S. Uh, well, I haven't really discussed that at all with uh, anyone. Okay, very cool. Well, okay, so now you, you've got you've got A Pocket Full of Murder out. You're republishing these. Where are you working on now? I'm working on the sequel to A Pocket Full of Murder. Um, okay. It's uh, called A Little Taste of Poison, and it's due uh, very soon, and it will be published in um, September 2016, if all goes well. So Nice. I'm sure your readers appreciate you keeping about a year's pace on, on release. Yeah, I, I have done that. I have uh, published, well, it's been, this will be my ninth book. Um, and basically, the, uh, up until this point, I've published like eight books in seven years. So um, that's that's been quite a, a, a hectic wow. pace for me. And uh, actually, I'm planning after I turn in this latest draft of my manuscript, I'm planning to take a sabbatical. Um, I'm pretty tired. Mm -hmm. uh, it's I've kind of been pushing myself to do a book a year when I'm not really naturally a book a year writer. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've put everything I possibly can into making the books the best they can be. Uh, um, I don't think I've shortchanged them in that sense, but I think I've shortchanged myself as terms of my energy and my, you know, sort of my creative energy. I feel like I'm, you know, the well's drying up and I just need a break to to refill that well creatively, to just relax and read and think and wait to come up with an idea I'm really excited and passionate about before I write the next thing. And that's what I'm kind of looking for. Well, good. That, sound, that sounds like something worth doing, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like sometimes you just do need a break, and yeah, and that's that's good that you're you're taking that for sure. So, man, but though eight books in seven years—that's intense. Yeah, that's, that's yes. an intense regime. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, but it's it's been one. I mean, it's been amazing. I have sold everything that I have, you know, everything, uh, every proposal that I have sent to my editor uh, to my agent rather um, has has eventually sold. Um, somewhere or other. So that is that is pretty amazing because I know a lot of really talented writers who have had 
pub, you know, projects, full manuscripts even rejected and just, no, no, we just don't want that in the market right now or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the reason was and have had to, you know, write something else before it got accepted. So far that hasn't happened to me, which is pretty amazing, but it's also, you know, kept me on this busy schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely. Well, hey, I think we're going to wrap up. Hey, do you, would you be interested in doing any sort of giveaway for the show? I'll sure. I'd be willing to, to do a couple of uh, signed uh, hardcovers of the U.S. editions of Knife and Rebel. I don't Woo! have Arrow yet, or I would throw that in too, but uh, sure, I would like to do a giveaway of those. So uh, whoever wins, if they want them personalized or just signed, uh, I'll do that and send them to the winner. Nice. Okay. How do you want them to do this? Should they go like your Facebook or go to your sign up for your newsletter? Uh, yeah, if they sign up for my newsletter um, and then uh, just drop me a line um, on, they can do it on Twitter, they can do it on Facebook, they can, uh, you know, do it through the contact form on my website um, and, and just say, you know, this is my entry for the contest to win Knife and Rebel, uh, then I'll add them to the draw. All right. Hey, thank you so much. That is great. Okay, so where all can people find you? You've got your website. What is your website URL? Uh, it's www.rj-anderson.com. Okay. Very cool. And you've got a Facebook and a Twitter. Yep. Bearish, yeah. And uh, there's, links, there's links to my Facebook and Twitter pages through my website. Uh, sort of on the bottom right-hand corner, there's social media links, and you can find my various media links there. Very cool. Well, hey. Thank you so much for being on the show, RJ. This has been fun. Great. Well, thank you for asking great questions, and it's been nice talking to you. All right. Well, hey, you have an excellent day. Stay warm. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Bye. And that wraps us up for today. Check out RJ on the web. She's got a website. She's got she's got a blog on that website. She's got Facebook. She's got Twitter. I don't know about Goodreads. I should check to see if she has Goodreads. But hey, if you want to hang out with me, you can also do that. Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads. You know the drill. Y'all been listening. But yeah, RJ Anderson, super cool. Check out her stuff because it is like worth it. Is very cool. Hey, also, as I mentioned before in the intro, we are moving to a one episode a week system as opposed to the two episode a week. Now, basic arithmetic tells you that you are getting less very serious writing show, but not so. Not so. Because this allows me to do a couple things. First off, I'm gearing up to make a blog on thatguywiththehat.com. I'm gearing up to do that. I really need to get rolling on my dystopian comedy. I'm ready to rock and roll on that thing. And also, I've got some other projects I'm going to be working on. I've got a documentary I'm for sure shooting this summer. And some other things. You know, other little things. We'll talk about that, that later as it comes. For sure. But essentially, I'm wanting to do some other things. And with doing two episodes a week, I really can't do that. I can't, I'm, my time is very, very set in stone. What I can do, when I can do it. So, jumping back to one episode a week is going to free me up to do that. And it lets you listen to the whole interview as a piece. And honestly, interviews work way better that way. When you don't do them piecemeal, yeah, the, the, the interviews sound better. So, that's just what we're doing. And also, I really cannot keep staying up really late on Wednesday nights because I have an 8 a.m. Thursday class. It's business statistics, and it's getting rough. 
last couple weeks has been yeah it's been pretty rough so i can't keep doing that if y'all absolutely 100 percent have to stick with two episodes a week there's some reason that that needs to be a thing for you all or if you just really really want you can let me know and maybe i will reconsider but at the moment this is what we're doing this week is the first week we're going to do that and honestly you're looking forward to a better more complete more pristine more shiny version of the very serious writing show and some extras along the way thank you all again so much for staying tuned i love you guys i hope you all have a great week and i will catch you again soon Bom shakalaka, keep it rolling, farewell.